Welcome to Season 3. Hello. <laughs> First of all, I love your uh, Darian Garner ACAS. Had to do it. <laughs> yeah, the real deal. Had to put the credential there. <laughs> Certainly, you've worked for it. This year has been a long road. I'm still on it, still on it, but I'm glad to have reached that milestone at least. Uh, so, so you got through that exam. So there are a series of 10 exams. You have to get through seven to achieve associateship. So I got through my seventh exam and I'm now an associate of the Casualty Actuarial Society. I'm going to have three more if I want to reach fellowship. So I'm actually awaiting the results of the eighth exam. So hopefully that's good news. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> we got we got all this to talk about. And I'm excited about this. We're just going to get right in and, and get started. To everybody who is watching, welcome to Change for the Better, episode 35. I'm Stacey Tiro, a high school performing arts teacher for over 25 years. I've taught a lot of amazing people. Now that so many of my students are adults, they'll teach me how, through the lessons in my classroom, they have been changed for the better. Wow. Awesome. This is amazing to me. This whole process is just amazing to me. And I'm thankful for everybody who decided to like sit with me for these little conversations. So, oh, totally. You've had an impact on a lot of students. I know I'm happy, happy to be here, happy to contribute to the blog. Well, I cannot wait to have people meet you. So, I wanted to say first that for everybody watching, we have a genius on the show today. I am so proud to have a conversation with my guest today. She wasn't just another graduate of the class of 2013. She was also the valedictorian of her class. So we have some real brain stuff going on in our midst. I was very fortunate to cross paths with my guest when she was in high school. And because excellence was always her goal, she was a wonderful addition to the dance program. Before she developed into the full-blown brain trust that she is today, I was honored to teach her ballet in the dance studio. Not surprisingly, she had an affinity for the discipline of ballet and loved performing as well. And in fact, I think it was her junior year, she took on a duet with a classmate, Ingrid Castor, for that concert. And they, I remember they wore matching sky blue tutus. Yes. <laughs> I think I still have those tutus in a closet somewhere. By the way. <laughs> yeah. She was also a track star and an accomplished violinist. And she was always working to have balance between the academic, the artistic, and her athletic capacities in school. After graduation, she went on to study economics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania with a concentration in actuarial science. And if you don't know what that is, because a lot of people are like, what's actuarial science? Let's just say that there are scant few people that can actually wrap their brains around the complexity of that branch of mathematics. Actuaries are people who, through statistics and probability and numbers, 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 analyze risk, and they do their best to like try to predict the future of what's most likely to happen in their field. 
the greatest <laughs> definition I've heard. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and today she does that for Travelers Insurance, big, big giant company. So it is once again an honor to sit with her and pick her brain about her experience in the dance studio and see what stuck with her after all of these years. So as a side note, my husband actually works in insurance and he talks a lot about, you know, the different sort of branches of the insurance world. And he talks about the actuaries <laughs> and how like they're trying to predict the future all the time. I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, I don't know. They have numbers and they make numbers happen. So that's what this person <laughs> does. So we'll go right to the first question, which is, what is your name, the year that you graduated? And tell me a little bit more about what you do now. I am Darian Garner, graduated from Spring Valley High School in 2013. And I'm currently an actuary at Travelers, as Ms. Tiro mentioned. And I think you gave, a, like I said, a really awesome definition of what actuaries do. In short, actuaries quantify and manage risk. So I'm looking at statistics and trying to predict the future, essentially. More specifically, I work in personal insurance pricing. So I conduct analyses to evaluate whether the rates we're charging are enough to cover those losses that we don't know about when we sell a policy. In between, um, I've also had the pleasure to speak at actuarial conferences and do some recruiting. So it's been, it's been awesome so far. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Oh my God. It's, it it's right very on my impressive. Like, I, I, like as I've spoken to my husband about it, he's telling me like what this branch of people do. I'm like, wait, so they, they have to predict the future. He's like, yeah, but how would they, how do they know? I don't know. It's, it's all in the numbers. I'm like, <laughs> okay. That sounds good. It is a little mysterious. So the whole, I guess the premise is that you can use the past to help predict the future. So we're looking at historical losses and trying to understand how that might change for the future. So many factors in what goes into it. Totally. It's totally. not just what happened in the past, but it's applying the past to what's actually happening today. Correct. Thinking about all the, I know, inflation, big headline story. We're thinking about how that might impact future, future costs. Everything is definitely more expensive. So we have to think about what's now the correct rate to charge to account for those changes. So it's a constantly evolving environment, which definitely keeps, keeps you interested. How often would you say, are you right? What percentage of? Oh, it, we're never exactly right. The ball, the, the goal is to get as, as close as possible because like I said, because everything is always changing. We monitor things on, on a quarterly basis, maybe some things even on a weekly basis to revise the estimates that we're making based on the information that we have. So it's expected to be a hit or miss, but the goal is to get as, as close as possible to the truth. Right. So that, so the business can make the best business decisions. Absolutely. Yes. So using that very well-developed adult brain that you have now, I want you to look back to adolescent Darian. Describe that adolescent girl. Yes. So it's hard, hard to think back close to, close to 10 years ago uh, where I was in high school. So the first word that came to my mind was busy. I did a lot <laughs> in high school. You listed a few of the activities um, in the introduction you gave. So on top of the AP honors course load, I was, I ran track for two seasons a year. I was a violinist in the school orchestra and the all district orchestra. I was in a couple of honor societies. I volunteered outside of the school. So I was busy. That's definitely how I would describe myself in high school. And 
to be honest, a little competitive. That I was competitive against others and myself. Um, always trying to be better, right? So you you mentioned excellence in the beginning. I was always has been has been my goal, and I was ready to take the world by storm, ready to leave a mark somewhere in the world, and also sort of pride myself on being social, socially adaptable. And the high school was a little bit clicky, and I found myself able to navigate those different circles pretty easily. So I think I was pretty well-rounded in high school and I had awesome experiences. Definitely a great four years. I would agree. It was kind of amazing to see you with your hands in like all these different pots and maintaining the grades that you had in the classes that you were taking. A lot of these kids who are the high achievers, the AP honors, college level classes, they seem to take on everything, they can usually handle it. They're kind of wired to, I want, I want to do this and I want to do this and I'm going to do that. Like, and so the brains work very well, but I guess my question is emotionally, how did you handle that? It's a question I asked myself recently because I'm finding myself needing more time to do things. I was like, how did I manage to do all this, all these things in, in high school? And I had the best support system at home um, and at school too. The people in my life definitely created an environment for me to be successful in that way. My mom, my biggest cheerleader, she was always, always in my corner. My dad as well, pushing me to be, be the best that I can be. And then I had outlets. I had outlets like dance. All the activities didn't feel like work, right? I had fun running track and I had fun in the orchestra. So all of those were outlets to, you know, have fun with my, my friends and release some stress, really. Take yourself back to your dance studio experience there specifically. And so what was something or things that happened that helped you to manage or to regulate yourself? Because, you know, you can't always be like completely even keeled and happy. Sometimes, you know, you have bad days. So on those days when you kind of walked in going, oh, super stressed or sad or whatever, what, what there helped you to manage that? I'll start sometime before high school. So I actually started ballet at age four um, and I did it all the way up until middle school and stopped um, because I was introduced to, to track and I just didn't have the time to manage them both at the time. But then I started again in your class in high school. So I remember walking into your classroom as a sophomore and immediately I just recalled all the things that I had missed. And I really, I didn't even notice that I was missing them. Dance, firstly, it just, it's, it was a great form of exercise. It was exercise that didn't feel like exercise, right? So it was natural movement and creativity with the fitness component that we both know has both physical and, and mental benefits, right? It was therapeutic. The studio has always been therapeutic for me. If nothing else, it was a distraction from other, other things that were happening outside of the studio, right? It's the time to focus on this one, one activity. Dance was a tool to, to relieve some of that stress for sure. I think you could also extend this next question to your earlier dance experience. Cause I think it, it definitely tracked. What are lessons that you learned in the dance studio that you think about or use today? I mean, you're a highly disciplined person and ballet is a highly disciplined activity. I am thinking along the exact lines um, that you're going as, as the discipline and the determination that's required to, to be successful in, in dance. So, you know, you hear the cliches like 
at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And practice makes perfect. And they, they sound a little corny, but they're so true. And that's definitely a lesson that I've taken with me throughout the years. So whether it's like a double pirouette or a forte turn, I can take those lessons and apply them to my actuarial exams, right? So I might not get it the first time, but you set your mind to it, you put the work in, you can definitely overcome that and and achieve those goals. So discipline is definitely the number one lesson that I've learned and continue to use. The second is teamwork. And that's, I had to think a little bit about that one, but it's, it's obvious now, like teamwork is definitely a big part of it. So if dance might feel like an individual activity, but it's a collaboration, right? Especially in those class shows, you want to make sure that we all succeed. So like helping each other out. Um, you mentioned the duet that I, that I did with Ingrid Castor that definitely required a bit of teamwork. So I've taken that with me as well. You both co-choreographed that, right? You choreographed that together. I believe you choreographed it or at least most of it. Oh. Um, actually don't recall, to be honest with uh, you, we, we might've all had a little bit of input in, but I do remember that you were like, Oh, we want to do a duet together, ballet duet. I was like, okay, sounds good. But then I remember <laughs> who put it together. <laughs> That thing, lastly, and generally, I just taught me to be teachable, right? It taught me how to be able to accept critique. So I went from accepting that critique in a studio to receiving feedback in a workplace. So I think that's a skill that many people don't talk about, but something else I took took from dance. It's very true because ego and hubris play very heavily in both the dance world and in the workforce. And I think that there are a lot of people who think they have to just know everything. And there's a piece of them that if somebody else has a, you know, a different idea or even a better, God forbid, a better idea, they have trouble absorbing that and, and feeding that into their work output. It's really a shame because what I have found is that the act of collaboration pooling together the ideas of many people just makes a better product and makes for an easier time creating that product. Absolutely. It's important to be moldable, right? Always have something to learn. It's definitely Mm. something I strive to be as as a lifelong learner, right? So definitely a value that I hold. And I would imagine that that's what got you to where you are now. (laughs) A little bit of curiosity, lots of hard work. Yes. I've always looked at you as a very constant kind of person. But, you know, when you grow up, you grow up and you're never quite the same as you were, you know, 10 years ago. So how do you think you've changed since you graduated? Like I said, it's, yeah, been close to 10 years ago. I've been asking myself this question, like, how have I changed just as a moment in in reflection? And many things haven't changed, but other things have. So one thing that definitely has changed is my, my level of comfort with failure. I was a high achiever and overachiever in high school when I graduated and went to the Wharton school, which is a very competitive environment, almost reaching a level of toxicity and the level of competitiveness that, that exists there to the point where people don't even want to help each other, like get better in their classes because they want to be at the top. And it was there where I, I didn't exactly fail an exam, but I did not do well. Um, And I just, I wasn't used to that experience. And I called my parents like crying. And in retrospect, that's so silly. Like it it was an exam, but it was a a shift, a shift for me in in my perspective, right? 
some of that continued into my actuarial exam. So I haven't, I've not passed every single actuarial exam on my first attempt. Wow. Um, yeah, these exams are tough for one and then add in adulting on top of it. Life just happened and I didn't get them all on the first try. And it was actually my very first actuarial exam. It's um, an exam on probability where I did not pass. And I wasn't sure if this was the right career to pursue. I was like, maybe this isn't for me <laughs> because oh. just because I didn't get it on the first try, but I went back, took it a second time and passed it the second time. So I've definitely gotten more, more comfortable, more comfortable, like just not getting things on the first try, just getting up and, and trying things again. At what point do you think that kind of that shift happened that sort of kicked in like was it in college was it was it in grad school like it, where did that shift happen definitely college definitely college like went to a school where everyone came from the top of their class and it was a shock for a lot of people I this particular exam that I'm mentioning in college where I did not do so well a lot of my friends didn't do well either and all of us were shell-shocked like <laughs> what we're like straight A students like this doesn't happen <laughs> so it was it was definitely in in school wherever I was like you know what it's perfectly fine <laughs> it's fine not to always be at the top of a class or um, maybe not do well on a single exam just stop evaluate what happened and try to make changes definitely definitely learned that in in college yeah I think that's a really hard lesson for like younger adolescents you know the the 13 through 18 set, let's say, especially those high achievers. Uh, you know, I see them, I see them all the time and uh, you know, they're like, Oh, they sort of grind over their studies. And I'm like, just learn. And if a, if a grade doesn't, it's not the one that doesn't make you any less smart. It doesn't Correct. make you any less good. It's, it's just a number on a piece of paper and it's not going to make or break you going to a great college and achieving the, the goals and the dreams that you have. Their thinking is often very in a box that they have trouble busting out of. <laughs> but uh, that's good to know that the college is, is where you kind of figured that out. Totally. Yeah, totally. A lesson that needed to be needed to be learned. And I think this a second way that I change is, is just learning how to say no. So I mentioned that I did a lot and I'm actually still learning how to say no to things that are asked of me, just learning how to set boundaries for myself. So I'm not overexerted and overwhelmed in that way. So I know burnout was like a huge topic coming or throughout and coming out of the pandemic. I had always been used to doing it all, right? I, that was my thing coming to the realization that you can't and it's not healthy to try <laughs> was, was really important for me as well. So I think those how, are the two biggest How did ways. you fare in, in the pandemic as far as work? Like, did that, did it like slow you down or did it push you to, to strive for more? I think it's, at least at my company, it slowed things down a lot. There was a pretty long adjustment period, like trying to get everything to like a virtual environment as opposed to being in person. And I was working from home for two years. Things definitely slowed, slowed down on my end, at least. I definitely wasn't seeking to do more on top of the, the mental exertion just of the pandemic and trying to stay away from people. So I, during that period, I definitely wasn't trying to take on a whole lot more. 
Yeah. For education too, it, I really did think it, it slowed us down uh, immensely. Yes. We probably had a bit of a slower shift from the, that spring when we had to figure out how to go virtual. It really wasn't until like September when we had things in place to yeah. actual virtual education. And so those, you know, two or three months at the end of the school year, we just kind of like sat behind our computers going, uh huh. What? <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> I don't, I don't, what's a virtual assignment? What's asynchronous? I don't know what these terms mean. And we learned, but we're old and it takes us a while. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine because we, the transition at Travelers was pretty smooth because we had already, we'd worked from home occasionally, like when it snowed and things. So we had the, the infrastructure for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I, ca- I cannot imagine the challenges that that you all faced. Um, it's really interesting because you speak about snow days. I don't think we'll ever have another true snow day ever again. Why? Why? When you can do it online. <laughs> yeah. And that's it's so sad. depressing. It's sad. Oh, it's so depressing. I'm like, what if we get a blizzard and we have to dig ourselves out? We're going to, you're going to make us sit in our basement, you know, talking to, to Kit. No, give us a day. Yeah, right, that's, that's my rant. Rant over. <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone should have the joy of a snow day. Oh, yeah, go out and make snow angels. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Where are we? Ah, oh, here's a good one. So we you were talking about a lot of great things about, you know, setting boundaries and being able to accept a little bit of failure in order to be able to move forward. All those great things. Taking all of that, what would your adult Darian self? Tell your high school self to help ease the way a little bit. Number one thing I would tell myself is do not strive for perfection. So somewhere along the way in my school years, I'd earned the, the nickname perfect girl, which is like so crazy. <laughs> like, maybe subconsciously like had an impact on, on how I reacted to things and thought about myself. It's just so unrealistic definitely in hindsight, just telling myself that it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to, to make a mistake. It's okay to not be strong for a minute. That's the, definitely the number one thing. And the second piece I think is it's, it's okay to ask for help. So it's related to the first, but that was a big thing for me. Um, again, another discovery I made in, in college. I remember one class in particular wasn't vibing with it <laughs> at all. Wasn't vibing with the material or the professor really wasn't doing as well as I wanted to. What made it worse is that I didn't want to ask for help, which doesn't make sense, right? Like I want to go to the professor's office hours. And I think that was rooted in the fact that I'd I'd always been able to get it on my own, probably exacerbated by the fact that I was a minority in a predominantly white prestigious institution. Like if I need to ask for help, I must not belong here, which is the fate that face is exactly it. Silly. That, like that makes me nuts. That makes me crazy. I know. And I, like I said, not real at all, right? Like not reality. Like I worked my behind off to get to that position. So obviously I belong there and it's okay to ask for help. I'm definitely would tell myself those two things. About talking about the racial orientation and all that in that school, because I mean, this is like the Ivy Leagueest of Ivy League schools. This is, this is the no joke school. And yes, it is probably 99.7% white. We're going a little off course, but can you talk a little bit about like when you got there and then your 
sort of journey, the, that four-year journey, did things change in your perception, in your mind, how you thought of yourself in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. So going to college was a shock in, in a couple of ways. I, I mentioned like the coursework, but also a culture shock. So I'd grown up in Spring Valley for all my life, a predominantly black community. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm plopped into a predominantly white environment. And there is a little bit of imposter syndrome, if I'm being honest. I like in the beginning, I actually found myself consciously participating. I wasn't a huge like participator in high school, like raising my hand frequently, even though I, I might've known the answer. But in college, I was like, I have to show, I have to show these people that I belong in this room kind of thing. And then it's so unhealthy, <laughs> so unhealthy, but found a community, found a, a black community at Penn was really small, but strong mm-hmm. um, and found that just through venting, venting a little bit with those folks, it was very helpful getting through the four years. I personally had never experienced overt instances of racism, but I heard the stories. They definitely happened. There were like the Halloween parties that were culturally insensitive and, you know, people of color not being welcomed into the fraternity parties. It was a known thing, but like I said, I found, found strength in community. I'm glad that it wasn't overt, but sometimes I wonder if that systemic stuff is, is even worse. It's just more insidious. It just kind of creeps in. And I, I know I would feel uncomfortable saying anything. You know, you're trying to fit in. You're trying to beat that imposter syndrome and prove to the world and prove to yourself that you do actually belong there. And then you have this like undercurrent of, well, that's not really right. This is not really right. But what do I do about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Still there. It's still there. Didn't oh, find a yeah. certain. <laughs> have you, have you gone back? Like, have you done any like speaking engagements or, or anything like that? No, not at, not at Penn. I have not. And that's not because of what we're discussing. No. Just kind of had the opportunity to go back oh, to the area. Yeah. Let's kind of reflect on where you are now and yeah. what's something that you're grappling with in your life right now. Yeah. So this, um, this is a tough one for me. So my mom passed away in 2015. So I was a sophomore in college when that happened, actually just entering my junior year. Haven't really taken a moment to stop and grieve fully. So it happened in August of 2015, going right into my, my junior year. And it was literally like a couple of days before classes started. So we planned a funeral and I went back to school. And to be honest, those last two years of school were kind of like a blur, like just chugging through, just going through the motions. I had lost my biggest cheerleader. So I'm grappling with shifting from that extrinsic source of motivation to, to intrinsic. So trying to find that like within myself. That's something I'm still learning to do. And I, of course, I still have my dad and he's definitely a cheerleader too. But things just changed, just changed after that moment. And I channel her. I definitely think about all of the positive that she's spoken on to me. That keeps me going. Yeah, I lost my mom in in 2020, actually, um, after four years, basically, of, of a cancer battle. And from that moment forward, there's like this this hole that you have that you you can never fill. I mean, you can eventually, over time, learn to live with it. But when you sit in your quietest moments and you think about that person, it's like <sighs> there's something just missing about it. 
Yes. I, I wrote a book. Like I wrote a book about it because yes. I was like, I need to figure out how to navigate this and manage this. And as time goes forward, the human brain forgets things if you don't have like constant reinforcement. And I was so afraid of not having that memory and regular interaction. So Mm -hmm. I can say that for me, the writing process about it was actually quite helpful. It's my little advice to you. Thank you. I used to keep a journal um, pretty frequently. I used to journal. I need to pick that back up again. Writing definitely is, is also therapeutic. And the grief process when you lose your mom, it's like the rest of your life. You're doing it for the rest of your life. Yes. As you have firsts, as you, you know, you get married, you have kids, you have an achievement, you're always reflecting on what would they have said? What would, how, would mm-hmm. they, how would I have felt when, when they talked to me about it? And Exactly. Yeah. Like walking into my last, the exam I just took a couple of weeks ago, like I knew she would have sent me some super long text of the morning of, um, I actually still save a couple of those tests and reread them. So she's with me. She's with me along the way. And I know, I know she's still cheering every day. Tell me one thing that you miss about your high school self. And then one thing that's gotten better since you grew up. A lot of people say college will be the best years of your life. But honestly, I think high school was that for me. High school had so many less worries. I had huge circles of friends. I had a a really good time in high school. But I think what's gotten better since then is developing a stronger sense of self. I was doing things I thought I was supposed to doing things my parents were telling me to do, my teachers were encouraging me to do. But since then, just being in a place to make my own choices, defining my own values, that's definitely been a benefit of of just getting older. So I have such a greater sense of self-awareness as well in my emotions. Actually, I lived alone for five years. So after I graduated from college and moved to Connecticut for work, I had an apartment on my own and had a lot of time to spend with myself and my own thoughts. Shouldn't sound sad. (laughs) It shouldn't sound like a sad thing. It just gave me time, time to reflect and that time to grieve a little bit. It was time that, that was needed to develop or rather think about my purpose and my place in the world. So There's definitely still work to do, but I think I've grown tremendously in that sense. I was going to say, and maybe you kind of just answered it, but at what point did you embrace your independence? When did you feel truly independent? I'd say, uh, yeah, after graduating from college. So college, like, yeah, you get a little taste of it. I, you know, I went to school in, in Philadelphia where there are like plenty of things to do. And my friends and I would hop on a bus and hop in Ubers and go all across the city. And you're, you're a semi-adult in, in, in that stage, right? And graduating from college is when it really, really hit me. Like, okay, I have my own apartment. I have my own bills to pay. I got to get to work, get to work every single day. So that's, that's for me, like when the, the true adulting started and feeling like a real sense of independence. And, you know, a lot of kids, when they graduate from college, they go back home and mm-hmm. you didn't do that. I did not. So it's, it's interesting because when I moved to Connecticut, so I got a job offer in Hartford right after graduation. My dad also got a promotion. He moved to New Hampshire. So we are both kind of moving at the same time. And I actually, I don't have the childhood home to go back to. I have a couple of family members still in in the Rockland area, but it was kind of like, not forced. Obviously my dad would have had, ha- held the door open for me if I really wanted to go, go stay with him. But sure. 
it was kind of in the plan that I would, you know, just uh, start on my own at that point. And that's kind of the intrinsic motivation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of don't have, you can't go backwards. We don't want to go backwards. (laughs) Exactly. I keep thinking, so my, my older daughter is, um, she's a junior at, at Bingham, yeah. and she was talking about doing like the, the four plus one program. I was like, oh, great. That's great. But that means that grad school is only going to be one year as opposed to two mm-hmm. years. And, and she's really enjoying living on her own. She transferred, you know, this year and she really likes it and she's really like getting good at it. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, so is she going to move back home? after that plus one year of that program like hmm how is that gonna work out (laughs) interesting for both for both you know the the child and and the parents right having them come back home my my dad actually he shared with me it was his expectation that I would come be with him for some time I'm like dad I'm you're in New Hampshire how's I going to commute to to Hartford Connecticut so (laughs) Now, when in the pandemic, did you go like visit him and stay with him and work? So he was super cautious. He definitely cut himself off from a lot of a lot of the world, including me. So I didn't see him for quite some time in person. So I did not I did not do a whole lot of visiting him. He's, you know, in his 60s and he was he was a little worried. So it's kind of respected that boundary that he drew. The older people. And, and at the time when there was no vaccine, there was and I was like, yeah hunker down and not talk to anybody mm-hmm. it was complicated but glad glad we seem to be moving out of it out of it so not okay. if you could give a piece of sage advice to high school students now what would that be i think i would say to do things you are passionate about and then sort of a sidebar to that is you know now is the time to explore what that passion might be. The cost of making a mistake is pretty low, maybe the, the lowest it'll ever be in your life. So True. it's time to try new things. And if your passion doesn't exist, create it, take some initiative. If you see a problem, think of a solution. We hear a lot about passion growing up, but another thing that just becomes more true as you as you grow older, you see the truth in it. Um, that it is so important to choose to pursue things that you that you love and that you're passionate about. Go go for it. Yes, yes, yes. Anybody who's watching, yes. If you're ever thinking, should I? Yes, always yes. Do it. Darian definitely benefited from the power of yes. Yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> we're we're going to round this out. Our last question is about you and how you take care of yourself. Tell me about three self-care practices that you do now to help to center and regulate yourself. Um, actually, a few months ago, I started taking bar classes. Yes. So I joined thinking it was going to be like ballet, but it's not, it's not like ballet in many ways. So, <laughs> but I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It put me back in like a studio environment. So I've been doing that for a few months now and I do it a couple of times a week. That's been excellent and just getting some exercise and, and relieving some stress. Secondly is the hair salon. <laughs> I go to the hair salon every two weeks <laughs> <laughs> on the dot. Um, now yeah, like, so it's just that, that scalp massage that I need every, every two weeks religiously. So I've kept that up since I graduated. So that's, wow. 
<laughs> so like you get the scalp massage, you get a little trim, get it straightened, done. Yep. That's, That's the routine. What a great ritual. <laughs> that is the routine. Thirdly, I also recently started therapy. I've watched a couple of these episodes and I noticed that's a recurring theme. Um, and I actually started at, at the encouragement of my boyfriend. And it's another thing that I didn't realize I needed until I pursued it. It's been helpful, helpful so far, talking through some of the, some of the things I've kept to myself for maybe too long. So therapy is, it's just so great. It's a leap, you know, that you take because especially if you are a very quiet private person and you hold a lot of things close to the vest to give yourself the permission to reveal that, to actually utter these things to a complete stranger, to unravel all of those thoughts is scary. Yeah. It's really scary. And oftentimes you don't see the benefit of therapy. You don't see it right away. It takes time and people are impatient and they want the quick fix. And that's just, mm-hmm. that's not what it is. Let's see, you're, this is episode 35. I would say 30 out of 35 of the people who I've interviewed are in some form of therapy. The mental health issues that kids deal with at the high school level, sometimes we as teachers see it outright Uh and sometimes we will never see it Uh ever. And the more focus that, that we can do on social emotional learning and strategies, you know, self-care strategies that we can offer them. If they're not going to entertain therapy, at least we can, we can throw a couple therapeutic ideas their way and help to try to encourage them. I'm constantly encouraging kids. I'm like, you know, be a good idea to go talk figure out a therapy situation. Yes. Yes, exactly. I'm so happy to hear that. Like, I think part of it is like maybe a gen- generational thing. It's becoming more, more acceptable socially um, to just go, go talk to someone. And I remember I told my dad for the first time that I was, you know, starting therapy. He's like, what's wrong? <laughs> like, are you okay? I'm like, dad, I'm fine. Like, it's <laughs> fine. Just talk, just talking about some things through. It's both generational and it's cultural. Totally. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very much so. It's definitely a thing in, in the black community. Like you, you resolve your issues with God. Um, you don't have to talk to, talk to any therapist. You pray and pray, prayer is You should do that. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it, it helps. It helps to, to talk to someone else too. So I might actually be turning my dad. We'll, we'll see. He might, he might get himself into, into some sessions, but that's a hard battle. <laughs> losing, your, losing your wife. I mean, I'm, I'm making the assumption that they were together and happy and all that losing your wife. Um, and it, was it a sudden thing? And yes and no. So she passed away from sickle cell anemia. Oh. So she had had the disease for all of her life, but her death felt sudden in that she wasn't, you know, hospitalized for a long time beforehand um like we knew that she would she would pass first um but as to when was a question mark so in some ways yes in some ways no I mean you're never really prepared right exactly I guess it helps to sort of have that knowledge in the respect of 
make the most that like you really have to make the most of your relationship of your experience together that you can absolutely but the actual loss is never you're never prepared for it no something you handle when it happens exactly I think we question in ourselves do we have the strength you know, to really handle it and manage it. And the answer is always yes, but you, you never really know until you have to test it and you have to get through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. leaning on your community and your family and yes, all of the things that you talked about here in this episode. Well, Darian, this has been absolutely delightful. I haven't, I can't believe I haven't seen you in almost three years. That's just crazy. I know very much so, but it's been such a pleasure pleasure catching up with you Ms. Tiro. Thank you so so much for joining me on my little podcast here. Very enlightening, very good advice, good things that I think adolescents, early 20s people really need to hear like over and over and over again. So I'm glad that you reflected your experience. For everybody who's watching, tune in next week for episode 36 of Change for the Better, the Power of Arts in Education. <laughs>